Welcome to the Freshman Foundation Podcast, helping you make the jump from high school athletics to the collegiate level and beyond with your host, Michael Huber. Hey everyone, it's Mike Huber, founder and CEO of the Freshman Foundation and certified mental performance consultant. The Freshman Foundation Podcast helps young athletes be ready for every next step in the game of life. To learn about how you can be ready for your next step in the game of life, visit michaelvhuber.com. Thank you for listening to the Freshman Foundation Podcast. Welcome to the Freshman Foundation, a podcast that explores the human side of athletes and the real stories behind the glory and the grind. Our mission is to help young athletes be ready for every next step in the game of life through mental performance coaching. How is John Gallucci helping injured athletes to get back on the field faster? Ever wondered about the crucial role physical therapy plays in an athlete's journey? Today, we're privileged to host John Gallucci, a renowned physical therapist and entrepreneur who's transforming lives in the athletic world. From the significance of preconditioning to the art of choosing the right therapist, John takes us behind the scenes of physical therapy and shares his entrepreneurial journey. I'm excited for this conversation. Let's build your foundation with John Gallucci. Hey, John, how are you? I'm doing well, Michael. Yourself? I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast here. It's great to have you. Uh, I guess the first question I'd ask you is, um, what inspired you to get into the physical therapy profession? It's an awesome question. Some of my staff and my kids would say it's a little long-winded, so I'll kind of condense it for you (laughs) and your listeners. Ultimately, when I was 12, 13 years old, my mom and dad owned a business in Brooklyn, New York uh, called Brill Surgical, and we used to furnish the neighborhood and and four different hospital accounts and different physical therapy uh, clinics accounts with medical supplies. So at 12, 13 years old, you know, I was uh, a kid working for mom and dad, delivering supplies to different physical therapy locations. And I had an opportunity to walk into about five or six of them a week. And I used to watch the therapist working with patients. When I was 13 years old, there was a gentleman by the name of Sam Feather. He was a physical therapist at the International Longshoremen's Association Medical Building in downtown Brooklyn. And he was the lead physical therapist. And he took a liking that every time I delivered uh, supplies to the location, I would sit there for 30 to 40 minutes and watch him and other physical therapists work with patients. And at 13 years old, he said, you know, you really seem to like what we're doing. You want to come and help out. And at 13, 14, 15 years old, I helped with, with Sam and his team and would see anything from people with low back strains to at the time on the docks, they had diesel diesel fuel operators with diesel burns. I would see people that were amputees. I would see people with broken backs. Um, anything that you can imagine at 13, 14, 15, all of a sudden I had the experience to be around and, and work with the physical therapist. I mean, I was just observing, but I would clean the Hoya tubs. That was my job. I had to clean the Hoya tubs. And, you know, the, the nicest thing I like to say is I'm 56 now. And since I'm 13 years old, I haven't been out of a physical therapy center since. 
Um, and, and ultimately, I found my passion at a young age. I was an athlete, so I kind of took the sports route. That's why I'm dual degreed. I'm a physical therapist and a certified athletic trainer. And I had the opportunity to, oh, my career to stay in sports as well and, and rehab, rehab injured and ill people that were from sports injuries besides the general, the general public with, with all their injuries and illness. So I've had a lucky path, and it all started when I was 13. Now, my son would tell you I really condensed that, so I'm getting better. <laughs> You're working on it all the time. I mean, that's fascinating, right? So, like, you know, growing up in, in Brooklyn, you know, I, I would imagine, you know, physical therapy was not something that was um, common. There was, wasn't a common awareness of it, right? So, like, I guess the question I want to ask is, is, like, what did your family think of it when you came back and said, I want to be a physical therapist after having, you know, been a bit of business and, and, and probably not exposed to something like that. So as you can imagine, a lot of physical therapy was, was facility based medical center based. Uh, there were very far and few between practices. In fact, mm -hmm. I could name three off the top of my head that were maybe the legacy practices of Bensonhurst, Bay Ridge and Staten Island. And, and if you really look at it, all of those practitioners and providers came out of hospital-based. So it was very hospital-based. And as we see now in 2023, it's it's kind of flipped the script. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. more outpatient-based, like a lot of healthcare. And the institutional-based physical therapy has become more outpatient based on evidence-based, getting better outcomes, getting people better. Now, when I went home and told dad, and this is interesting, when I went home and told dad that I, I was interested in becoming a physical therapist, you know, he had a plan that both his children were going to be lawyers. And, and, and you know, in a, in a typical Italian household, you had to honor thy father's wishes and honor thy mother's wishes. And dad looked me in the face and said, you can't be a physical therapist. They make no money. And I'm not going to support you the rest of your life. And it's not going to happen. And by the way, it's a female profession. It's not for males. And I'm like, Dad, I'm working with Sam. Sam is a male. And, you know, but he was not happy of my path. And you've got to know from 13 till about 22, he did everything possible to show me different paths. But I had the passion of physical therapy and that's what I wanted to do. And they, you know what they say, do what makes you happy. And I've been very fortunate to, to follow my goals and my path. And I teach my children every day. It's not, not mom and dad's path. It's your path. I'm living my path. You've got to live your path. Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, I can relate to that as well. And it's interesting when you were saying that, I mean, I can relate to what you said about being in the traditional Italian household. I grew up with a grandmother who came over from uh, Sicily and she lived downstairs and we lived upstairs. And like, I get the, I get where you're coming from. I actually thought you were going to say that your parents wanted you to go into the family business. It's actually really interesting that they wanted you to be lawyers. My, my father had this fixation on on attorneys that attorneys would always have a job and and the way my my grandfather and my father would always say you have to have a job that's a profession and the profession has to be able to put a roof over your head food on the table and clothing on your back and for some reason my dad had picked that both his children should be attorneys now my brother is a very very successful attorney um <laughs> me 
I love I love working with people each and every day and trying to help them with their goals and and getting them back as we like to say back in the game of life and yeah. and getting people to fulfill their goals and at the end of the day you know when you're dealing with people that are ill and you're dealing with people that are injured there's no better reward to me to get them to reach their goals and think about it I've dealt with grandmas and I've dealt with pro athletes making gazillion dollars a year and Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter to me it's just about helping people reach their goals yeah so so fast forward right now obviously you're in a you're very successful you own your own business and and it's obviously it's gotten you to probably places you never imagined you could have gotten to financially and otherwise professionally so was there a point when like your parents your dad specifically saw that you sort of had the success was he able to see it and be like oh, I get it now, or like, wow, this is great. Did, did he ever get to sort of see you get to the point you're at now? So dad is still with us, thank oh, God. Fantastic. And like I said, unfortunately, mom, we lost in July, but dad is still with us and he's seen a lot of my success and he's acknowledged that he, he should have encouraged it a little mm-hmm. bit more, but loved my thick-headedness that I would still stay on on the path. And, and listen, it wasn't an easy path. I mean, physical therapy and anybody thinking of studying physical therapy has to understand that, um, you know, the profession is one that is very clinical, very hands-on, being able to take didactic information, translate it into a clinical presence, and be able to come up with a plan of care that implements not just reduction of pain, but function, movement, and, and ultimately exercise, which brings you back to return of decreased pain, normal function, and, and being able to do an activity or a job that you may have to accomplish. And many people don't realize the hours of school, but also what many people don't realize is the high academic standard that physical therapists have to maintain. And I'll be quite honest with your audience. I wasn't the most focused student. Um, you know, I did well with my B's. An occasional C, a lucky A every now and then. But ultimately, when I was in high school, I was focused on being an athlete. I was focused on being social like a normal high schooler. Yep. I was focused on courting my wife. So, you know, I was I, I had a lot of other interests yeah, absolutely. Besides, besides studying for my anatomy test. Um, but then when I kind of bared down and, and knew what I was going to do in my path, that's when you really had to put the pedal to the metal, so to speak, and raise the level of academics to really gain you across the path. I still think today that our organization, CAPTI, and, and when you look at, at the athletic training profession, Katie, sometimes lose qualified candidates based on making the academic grade so stringent. Not that you still shouldn't take board exams not that you shouldn't follow a cadence of classes and attain grades, but I think the acceptance process, I think we turn around, we turn away too many students that maybe in high school or early years of college didn't really find their passion. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to penalize them the rest of life that they can't follow their path. Mm-hmm. I think that's wrong. I've been vocal on a national level. So so you're not the first person I'm telling you wrong. <laughs> I think we need to look at the well-rounded person, a person that wants to be a caregiver is, is very far and few between, and we need to promote that. Yeah. And yeah, maybe they didn't get an A on organic chemistry when they were a junior in, in high school or college, but you know, a B is okay. 
Are they someone that's passionate about the profession, wants to help people, wants to help people achieve their goals, and wants to give their life to caregiving is very important. Yeah. And and our professions are very similar, albeit yours is more, I think, technical uh, in a lot of ways. And it's also probably more advanced in terms of the time that it's been around. But ultimately, like sports psychology, when I was going through my training, everything was about coming from an evidence base. But one of the conclusions I drew, and maybe because I was an older student, because this is my second career, I was in my 40s at that point, like I was able to be a little bit more critical in my thinking was ultimately, it's the, to me, it's more the intent to your point about helping others, right? If my intent or my purpose is to help other people, we're going to figure out a solution because that's my motivation versus, hey, I'm really technically savvy and I know all these, you know, theories and I know all the books and I know all the research, but if I can't apply it to the person, right, it's not going to work, right? I mean, is that, is it same in the same in your field? You're 100% correct. And also, if someone has the passion and can pass the exams, Mm -hmm. why would we interfere based on a class or two in college? Um, not really giving them the opportunity to remediate those classes or, or, or have a better chance. But again, listen, every profession goes through its trials and tribulations sure. of growth. But as we see right now in the United States, especially coming out of COVID, a lot of your allied healthcare professions, physical therapy, occupational therapy, athletic training, uh, nursing, physician's assistant, all of those professions are lacking of people being licensed at this point in time, and they're looking at shortages over the next three to five years. So maybe that kid that got to be an organic chem can really be a good physical therapist if you just gave him the opportunity. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and again, my my PR team gets nervous when I, when I talk <laughs> about that, but I'm very honest. I feel that we need to give people a chance. Yeah. So, so I'm going to go back. Uh, I just want to take a couple steps back. So you talked about being an athlete a couple times. What was your, uh, what was your sport or sports of choice? So I was a wrestler and a baseball player. Okay. Um, and I've, I went pretty far with both as far as high school, college and club teams. Um, and I was a, an avid basketball player just in school leagues. Um, I have a great three point shot for a, uh, a short, stout guy. Um, and there's nothing better than when you try to drive on a short, stout wrestler. But um, but but ultimately, I was a baseball player and a, and a wrestler, uh, mostly wrestling. I had the opportunity to wrestle in high school. I had the opportunity to wrestle a little bit in college and a little bit open at a club level. And then I coached for more than 20 years as well. Um, and then in baseball, I played at the the, the the club level most of my life. In fact, so much that I didn't even do the high school level. I did the club level. And uh, unfortunately, between wrestling and baseball, I had to pick which way I wanted to go. And as you can imagine, wrestling definitely introduced me more to healthcare care uh, because I continually got hurt or my teammates got hurt. So I actually learned more about orthopedics and primary care sports medicine and physiatry mm-hmm. and physical therapy and team approach and a lot of that from, from my own injuries. Yeah. Well, so what were some of the injuries you had to deal with? So I've dislocated my right shoulder three times and have rehabbed that with only one minor surgery. I've had seven knee surgeries on my left knee um, for everything you could possibly imagine. Uh, broken ribs, 
concussions. My wife still says I'm concussed some days, <laughs> um, but but ultimately a tremendous amount of muscle strains. Dislocated my ankle, which was reduced to the hospital. Thank God, no surgery, just rehab on that. So, and then uh, you know I've I've had my issues only because I was hit by a car two years ago. I've I've been dealing with the last two years herniations of discs after being hit by a car. Yeah, uh, I realize a car hurts much more than another guy your size <laughs> trying to throw you. So, but I've been fortunate. You know, all of my injuries have taught me good lessons. Have made me work with good colleagues and good friends. And um, I think my staff would tell you I'm not a very compliant patient because I kind of take it to the next step. But it's been a fun run. Yeah. So so I guess the question I have there is, did your own experiences as an athlete going through maybe dealing with some variety of injuries and surgeries and all sorts of things, right? Does that Does that have any influence over the way that you think about your practice today? That's an awesome question. And when I started JAG, originally it was JAG physical therapy and then metamorphosed into JAG-1 physical mm. therapy. But when the original entity, legacy entity of JAG physical therapy, which those in the audience, not hard, John Anthony Gallucci, I kept it simple. Um, but, but, but ultimately, when I first started, I was coming out of pro sports. I had a, uh, I was a part-time summer assistant with the New York Knicks. I had done some summer league stuff with the Rangers uh, through a doctor and physical therapist friend. I worked with the Metro Stars, which became Red Bull mm -hmm. for seven years full time. I was around the New Jersey Devils doing surgical rehabs with them for the last 18 years. But when I had opened up the original Jag, I, I never understood, and it was tough, why wouldn't every single patient be treated like a professional or, as I like to say, a VIP? And when we opened up the legacy company, the goal was that everybody should be treated the same way. So taking into account the way I was treated as a high school and collegiate athlete, mm. you were VIP because they wanted to get you back on the mat. They want you to get back on the field. And ultimately, when you when you work in a college setting, I worked at NYU, I worked at Columbia, I had great relationships there working with the coaches and staffs. Mm -hmm. Then the pro experiences, you scratch your head and say, well, we're treating the pros and collegiate athletes. Why aren't we treating the high school, the club athletes? Better yet, why aren't we treating firemen, policemen, teachers, you know, people in the recycling business. Right. Why aren't we treating everybody the same way? Why isn't a painter that, that provides for his family each and every day painting over his head? Why isn't he getting the same care that a, that a, a VIP or an athlete is getting? So my whole marketing in the first two years were be treated like a pro athlete, be treated like a VIP. Come on over to JAG and we'll get you better. And we'll reach your goals. And one of the biggest things that most patients loved was it wasn't just about can you walk 10 feet without pain? It wasn't can you lift your arm over your head? It was can you carry somebody up two flights of stairs in case you're saving a life? I mean, we used to do these functional drills through the building. My original landlord was like, what are you doing? You're only supposed to be in this clinic. I used to bring athletes to the parking lot and make them run sprints and cuts. And then I used to throw baseball with baseball players, making them pitch into me. So everybody should be treated at the highest level. We're people treating people. 
Mm. And we need to give people the best outcomes. And research has showed us yeah. that a combination of a good plan of care, uh, an understanding, a hands-on progressive functional approach gives you the best outcomes. Yeah. And I, and I have some of that same experience myself. I've had two, uh, two cervical fusions. <laughs> so, but, but for me, you, it, you know, it. It, it was, it was a getting up and moving as soon as I possibly could, because that was the best way for me to get back to where I wanted to be. It wasn't sitting around for six months and waiting. It was, Hey, let's see what I could do today and do a little bit and a little bit. And like, I really appreciate that because we're all to, to your point, right? We're all performers, right? We all have a job to do and we all have to be at our best and sitting home for three months or six months or not being able to function is not acceptable, <laughs> right? It's, it's very tough on, on the, on, on the social cycle component as yeah. well. You need interaction. You need to be moved. You need to be, you need to be uh, pushed by your colleagues and your peers. You know, I mean, even, and listen, I may get beat up for this. Even all these people right now that want to continue to work from home, get out there, go interact with your peers, go hang <laughs> out, learn from others. I mean, the probably the best thing that built my career was working around mentors, yeah. seeing their actions, seeing how they behaved, seeing how they treated patients. And then if you look at my business acumen, it was by being around businessmen and seeing how they functioned, interact in a meeting, cadence of communication. We learn from each other. We grow from each other. Get on out there. Start yeah. learning. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> you get no complaints from me. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and, and so it kind of, it, it, obviously you kind of make a reference to what's going on in the world today, right? People are working from home and things have obviously changed a lot. So like, what are some of the biggest advancements you've seen in the physical therapy field, the changes, um, from the time maybe you got in and you started, you know, kind of being an apprentice or learning to like now where you're at is being somebody who's a master who's been in the field probably 30 years. Well, what's awesome is listen, uh, Technology is advanced enough that it's easier for us to get research. It's easier, easy enough for us to get comparisons of diagnoses. It's easier of us to follow path of progression based on diagnosis, which helps us with our, with our practitioners, our providers, kind of teach them and develop them and show them the reason the path is the right way based, as you said, on evidence-based. So technology, EMR systems, data collection have all worked on the behalf of all medical providers because the more data you have at your fingertips, the more opportunity you have for the best practice based on getting research. So that's been a huge asset to us. Um, the other thing that's been that's been a huge asset is the evolution of of I don't want to use the word exercise equipment. I'll use rehabilitative exercise equipment where, you know, it's not just a normal treadmill. I mean, we have eccentric loading machines now. We have biomechanical feedback. We have video analysis, and it gives us such a greater opportunity to really see the body mechanics and the movement, which gives you an opportunity to see if there's compensatory patterns. How do you break the compensatory patterns and get the patient to function within the guidelines that the joint is supposed to function in the muscles? Um, you know, I think that's another thing that's been awesome to see. But I will tell you the one thing that's, and again, I always like giving a positive, the one thing that's been a negative 
is when we look at the education system of didactic learning, we actually took away the clinical skills test of utilizing your hands-on therapeutic exercise progression, movement analysis, and biomechanical analysis. You know, we've we've gone very didactic in the schools as opposed to truly hands-on. And physical therapy, although they're teaching it in the schools, should reinforce the clinical sense that we are a hands-on profession. You know, I always like to say, you know, a surgeon is the artist and a physical therapist is the frame that makes the art look really, really good. And we are a hands-on profession, just like athletic training, a hands-on profession. And we have to be able to be able to utilize our hands, be able to use our plan of care, be able to use therapeutic exercise to get the patient to reach their best goals. So we have to kind of bring back that clinical presence of truly being able to utilize your hands and your skills of your hands to progress the patient. Really interesting. Really interesting. So I know you've referenced a little bit about your work in professional sports and and college sports and things like that. So, I mean, that's kind of typically the audience we're, we're catering to here. So I'm curious in terms of your work with those types of athletes, like Maybe what are some, I know obviously there's a range of injuries or a range of uh, modalities that you're probably using, et cetera. But if you could sort of boil it down a little bit, what are the biggest challenges you find working with high level elite athletes? General managers, owners, wives, <laughs> uh, and agents. The athletes are pretty cool. It's very it's it's all the luggage that that comes with the pro athlete. And listen, we've got a great relationships with agents across the world because we see we see athletes from around the world. And the agents actually love the outcomes of Jaguar and physical therapy. They also love the fact that we're we're based in the tri-state area, easy access from the airports. I mean, there's been many times we've had athletes come in, stay in hotels, rehab with us for eight to twelve weeks, and then fly back to their team. And, and again, I've been fortunate. Listen, I'm the luckiest man in professional sports. I've been able to work at every level of sports. I've been able to work in between different leagues. I've been able to work at the university level, the high school level, the Division One level, Division Three level, and I've never had a move out of where I was born and raised, the tri-state area. I have colleagues all over the world that have had to relocate their families two and three times because of opportunities. I've been able to live in the tri-state area and work at all those levels and work at technically three different leagues consulting to five different leagues. So I've had a very fortunate career and I'm very lucky. I met a girl from the Isle of Staten. We were married <laughs> on the Isle of Staten and, and, and we did, we only moved 19 miles away into New Jersey. So I'm pretty lucky when it comes to that. But the experiences of working with athletes at every level has gained me the opportunity and the expertise to truly be a person to help everybody understand what's going on. And when you get a compliment from a general manager or a chief medical officer of one of these teams that the communication channel has been transparent, that's the most important thing with pro sports. You know, I remember getting in a scenario years ago with a professional NHL team and a high level, it was their captain, it was their star. Um, and I remember that the physician of the team, the chief medical officer, and the consulting physician that did the surgery never got on the phone with each other. 
And ultimately, I'm a week into this athlete's rehab. And I have a general manager and coach upset that the, the athlete's timeline is not what they were told. And they had a three to four week timeline. And I had given my plan of care. And my plan of care was a four to five month plan of care. Wow, big difference. Well, the president and GM got on the phone with me and knew me and said, John, we were expecting this athlete to be out maybe four to six weeks. You've got him out close to four to six months. And, I'm, and I said, well, I don't know where the mix-up got. The surgeon that provided me with the notes and the surgery, that was the intervention, has given me his guidelines and what surgery was done. And I've done this type of surgery before and rehabbed an athlete at this level before. And I'm telling you, short time is four months, long time is six months. <laughs> but let me send you the information. Sure enough, they got the physician involved, the chief medical officer involved, and the chief medical officer was like, I had no idea that the consulting surgeon was doing that instead of this. Yeah, sure. And ultimately, that's where the breakdown of communication. Yeah. So most of your owners in America that have dealt with me, most of your general managers, your presidents, your chief medical officers, love the fact that on day one, I make sure everybody knows what was the procedure, what's evidence-based care, and what is the plan of care. So everybody's on, from the coach to the GM, the wife, the husband, whatever athlete it may be. I make sure everybody is in the communication chain so everybody knows what's going on. Of course, with the athlete and the agent's permission. But that's probably the most important thing. Communication is key. And then the athlete. Listen, there's nothing better than dealing with athletes because they're always motivated to get better. They want to get better. So it's like you're dealing with people at the highest level of fighting to get back because, as you know, sometimes bonuses are predicated based on games played, goals scored. So uh, these athletes are, are motivated to get back. But we have a professional duty to do it the right way and get them back safely. Yeah. But I, I would imagine, and I think it probably comes down to communication, right? But it's, and maybe I'm saying the same thing here, but it, just what you just finished up with is, you know, managing expectations like, Hey, you know, I know you want to get out there faster, but if you don't do this the right way, here are the potential consequences. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things I've talked about on this podcast and I've, I've, I've learned a little bit about is sort of the psychology of injury, but more so about me, even more specifically re-injury. Like, so what I mean by that is athletes who are hundred percent physically repaired, rehabbed, ready to go, but still having doubts about their ability to go out and perform the same way they did pre-intervention. How do you sort of, how does that come up in your work? How do you deal with that? If you have to at all, like, just, can you talk about that? As you can imagine, especially with your background, there's a psychosocial component that someone's hurt and all of a sudden they're expected, as I said, to run up two flights of stairs and carry a 200 pound person down to an athlete that's got to run, you know, a, a touchdown in or kick a goal or, or slap shot a goal in or defend somebody. And it's all about making them feel confident. And if they understand the process, and they understand the goals that they have to reach to get themselves comfortable, 
That's the most important. But most people don't understand that the easiest way to get an athlete to feel that courage or confidence, which is what, really what it is, is to truly work with them on that process. This is where you have to get. This is where you are now. We need to do this step, this step, this step to get you here. And then we're going to put you through a functional skills test to make sure you're ready here. We're going to work with your performance coach, your strength and conditioning coach, whoever it may be, to make sure you're fit, your game fit, your practice fit, you're aerobically fit. So it's not just the rehab of the knee, the rehab of the of the ankle or the shoulder. It's rehabbing the entire athlete. You know, I remember one time, I, I never understood this. I had worked for a, a physical therapist in, in New York, in Midtown Manhattan years ago. And he had a, a college athlete, and the college athlete was probably 10 weeks post-op of a rotator cuff repair. And I, I had no idea why this athlete was doing nothing standing, nothing engaging with their core. They weren't doing anything engaging with their legs. And, you know, you're post-op 10 weeks. You're pretty functional. Balance, stability should be there. And you're rehabbing your shoulder. But you're a thrower. You're a swinger. You've got to be able to put it all in. So I, I asked at the time, unfortunately, the answer wasn't good. I said, you know, we're rehabbing this athlete to go back, and, and, and he was a pitcher. I said, shouldn't we start engaging his core and his lower extremities and making sure we're getting them up to fitness levels and strength? And he came back with and said, I got the order from the doctor. I'm in charge of the shoulder. And I promised myself I'd never be a physical therapist that way. We treat the person, the person's goals. And if you've got an athlete that has a rotator cuff repair, you've got to treat the entire body, the entire person, from brain to muscles to skeleton to heart. To, to yeah. So you've got to train the individual. You've got to rehab the individual. And I learned a lesson. I left that bird that place real quick, and I went to, <laughs> I went to another place and had an awesome mentor. Yeah. So, But I think the question that comes up there is, you know, thinking about maybe a couple steps down from say a professional organization, right? A high school athlete who maybe doesn't have the quality of an integrated team that you just described in terms of like having all of those different uh, people who were in the recovery process on the same page. Is it harder with a younger, like a high school athlete who's going through a rehab or how do you manage that differently than a, a professional organization where you've got all these resources. So that's that's an awesome question. <laughs> First and foremost, most athletes with parents have the integrated the integrated team because mom or dad are pushing <laughs> that integration. And they want you talking to the coach. They want you talking to the athletic trainer at the school. So so, so thank you, moms and dads yes, out there for the for support. Sure. But but ultimately you're right. Listen, they don't have the access as as well as a as a as a college and or pro athlete. But I will tell you, in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, where we practice, we've got some great colleagues at the high school level and the club level that we work with and we engage. But the easiest thing to do in that level, especially with the teenagers, is to make them understand this isn't just about getting back on the field. You have to have a longevity, sustainable kind of thought process. We don't want you back at JAG1. We want you to continue to success. 
tell your friends that get hurt to come to Jag One. But if you've got a hamstring injury, you got a groin strain, a quad strain, you do an ACL rehab with us or an ankle surgery rehab, we want you back 110% and we start from day one. And ultimately, the most important thing is not to have athletes come back with re-injury, but to get them there appropriately by dealing with the coach and the parent and the athlete and make them understand. Again, go back to the rotator cuff. Why are we making you do core activities as a baseball player? Because everything is core in baseball. Why are we making you do lower extremity exercises? You can't rotate your weight on a, on a baseball swing unless your lower extremities are stronger. So it's more of making them understand the process and understand the integration of the body and how it works. I think you've just hit on a really critical point there because it's the same. I think it's the same if you're somebody like me who works with athletes or, or if a coach or anything, right? The more that the athlete understands why you're doing something, the better off they're going to be. They're going to be more motivated because they get it. Like I'm doing this for a reason rather than, oh, I'm just telling you to do this. And they feel like they don't have control over the process because they don't understand. Like, like the example you gave before, like I'm just responsible for the shoulder. I could imagine somebody like that, not necessarily that person, but if somebody thinks that way says, Hey, I'm the professional, you're the patient, come in, just do the exercises and I'll tell you when you're ready. And that doesn't really fly, right? It like, doesn't, doesn't fly. fly. You have to have a process of progression. They have to understand the different goals you have to hit. Listen, Everybody is goal-oriented. No matter it be business, healthcare, everybody is taught. You need to get a grade on a test. You need to do this to advance in school. Everybody is goal-oriented. So why shouldn't your rehab be a step goal orientation sure. based on your plan of care? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, sticking with maybe the, the, the high school athlete, sort of that, that, that group or demographic. So, have you seen an increase or prevalence of certain types of injuries in younger athletes now? I mean, the one that comes to my mind, you know, just sort of instantly is, is UCL repair, Tommy John surgery, but are there other types of surgeries or more, maybe not that, that you see that maybe are more common today than, than there were 10 or 20 years ago? So ACLs and UCLs on a surgical component are definitely mm -hmm. leading. Um, what we are seeing coming out of COVID is a lot of young young youth athletes with with low back injuries. Um, and it's really because I think there was a long period of time with not a lot of core training, not a lot of exercise. Um, so that's just my quick two cents on that. Um, but the one thing we are seeing a tremendous amount, and, and again, it goes back to that coach-parent relationship, is we're seeing a lot of overuse injuries. We're seeing injuries that can be decreased or not even happen if there's good training regimen, if there's good preparation, if there's good nutrition, if there's good hydration. And, and ultimately, it's really sad to see a youth athlete miss three, four, five weeks with a strained hamstring that ultimately could have been prevented. And when I say, how could it be prevented? Let's look at high school sports, right? And I'm around high school sports since I'm 13. So, so I'm, I'm around a long time. I, we, we have relationships with over 200 high schools in the tri-state area. We work with high schools. We try to help them prevent injuries each and every day. But if you look at it, you know, a 14, 15, 16-year-old 
is going to have difficulty six weeks, seven weeks before their preseason to truly condition. And although coaches are trying to build conditioning programs throughout the year, they don't go home with these athletes. They don't see them in their offseason of the high school season. And ultimately, we'll always see two big jumps in soft tissue injuries. You'll always see it in the fall. You'll see it the last two weeks of August, the first two weeks of September. And you'll always see it in the spring, usually the, the, the four weeks of March. You'll usually see it. And a lot of it has to do with high school athletes not being prepared for the demands of the sport that they're going to participate in. And, and a lot of that, and parents are starting to buy in. And listen, I've got two books out there, one on soccer, one on baseball. Parents are really starting to get out there and starting to read more and, and get their children to understand you need to be aerobically fit. You need to have your core strong. You need to be eating right. You need to hydrate appropriately. And if we get more and more parents to get engaged with their kids and the coaches, on a pre-seasonal workout, we'll see less silly soft tissue injuries. And soft tissue injuries are nagging because usually a youth athlete, 10 days after the injury, oh, I've got no pain. And then they're like, they don't go back to physical therapy. They tell them their mom or dad, they have no pain. They go back to the field. They do one sprint. Guess what came back? The pain. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so we've got to do we've got to do it the right way. But I will tell you, it's upsetting to me. I mean, listen, I wrote two books. I've been around the world lecturing. I I, I mean, I try to do more and more things to inform parents and youth sure. athletes. Uh-huh. The easiest way to stop overuse and, and 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 injuries is good hydration, good nutrition, and prepare for the demands of the sport you're going to play. Yeah. It's so interesting you say that. I, I work with a I work with a kid in my coaching practice who's a baseball player and, and he went out for his very first scrimmage and his first at bat in the scrimmage, he got a hit and he's going up the line and tweaks his hamstring. And he's had it before. So it's a recurrence. It's back again. And and so not only do you have this like frustration that the injury is back and you want to get back as quickly as possible, but now you also have this sort of like idea, like this sort of notion in the back of your head, like, you know, like, oh, here it is again, here we go again. And it affects confidence and it's really, really challenging. And I think, you know, unfortunately, I mean, maybe parents are better, but I think I see in my work, the, the, the athletes themselves, even high school age athletes, like, I think the idea of rest and recovery and all these sort of, um, sort of more ancillary forms of, of care, self-care are put to the side because, there's a perception that the return on investment isn't as great as I need to go lift or I need to go hit or I need to go do whatever. And that other stuff sort of falls by the wayside, but then that's ultimately ends up being what causes these nagging injuries. Well, Um, how about, how about again, and and I'll pick on this a little bit, (laughs) you know, these people paying, you know, youth athletes and their parents being persuaded to put their athlete in a three minute cryo chamber okay. and they're paying 60 to a hundred dollars for the three minutes to put them in a cryo chamber. Yeah. Do cryo chambers have positivity in, in different levels of athletic rehab? Yes. But I'd rather you keep your money and maybe, maybe take your kid for a really good nutritional meal on that money 
and and have them go through the appropriate preseason conditioning, a flexibility routine, a core routine to prevent the injuries. You know, cryotherapy is not going to present prevent anything. And when you're rehabbing, a physical therapist, an athletic trainer is going to utilize cryotherapy as needed in the plan of care. So to spend 50 to $150 for three minutes to sit in a tube, it's not going to progress that healing process as quick as you're being sold. And I would love parents to just save the money and go to a movie <laughs> with your kids and, and, and really consult with your physical therapist, your athletic trainer, and come up with a good plan of care where there is an implementation of cryotherapy, but it's not that expensive. Yeah. So, so I want to ask you a couple more questions. So, so I want to ask you a question on that, right? So, so you raise a good point. Like I wrote down prevention versus remediation, right? And you can think about that in any context, right? Do, do I invest it on the upfront? So I prevent it or do I just wait till it happens? And then I try, do I try to re remediate? Right. And you mentioned consulting with a phys physical therapist. Do you find people like I guess what I'm saying, what I want to say is like people usually go to a physical therapist when they need to remediate. Do you find that people are investing in that relationship more proactively to try to get consultations and try to get in, in, input and advice? Or is it still very much traditional like, oh, I have an injury. Let me go treat it and then I'll get out and that'll be it. You know, on a global component, I would say the latter. I've been fortunate enough that I'm ingrained in the sports community mm -hmm. and people are, are reaching out to me, which was the reason I had written the two books. I mean, technically, I could write five more with five other sports. I think my team would kill me if I did that. But, <laughs> but, but ultimately, listen, people that have the, the, the access to a sports medicine, physical therapist, athletic trainer, need to use that as early as possible for prevention of injuries with their youth athletes. Of course, when you're at the college and, 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 and pro level, they have teams that are integrated that work with the athletes. But at the high school and the club level, let's face it, you get hurt as a club athlete, you're farmed out. How about prevention first? How about let's prevent it and, and do it better that way? Um, you know, and again, it's understanding the demands of the sport. Somebody asked me one time, you know, what would be the best comment you can give a parent that has an athlete in sports? And, and, and it's funny. I said, how many words do I get? And they said one. And I said, well, it's a little hard descriptive with one, but it would be patience. And the reason why it's patience is you have to understand. There's a conditioning component, and your body acclimates strength-wise, aerobic-wise, on a four- to six-week model. So when you look at the pathology of the human body and you look at conditioning and training, you don't start to see benefits of aerobic and benefits of strengthening for a four- to six-week period. So then, think about this as a parent. How can you take your son or your daughter? Going through your summer vacation, let's say your summer vacation is August 1st to August 10th, and then expect them to be doing two-a-days 
at football practice on the 15th of August or at, or at preseason soccer practice. And when there's probably a three-mile run involved in sprints, so parents have to be patient to understand if your son or daughter are truly going towards an athletic proness where they want to possibly use it to go to a higher educational institution or get possibly get a scholarship or maybe be part of the small percentage that gets into pro sports, you have to understand that there needs to be a conditioning component before any preseason that's no less than six weeks. Okay. And that's how you prevent them from being injured. Soft tissue injuries mostly. You're never going to stop collision injuries. Right. They're going to happen. That's part of the game. But you will have an opportunity to decrease overuse injuries, decrease soft tissue injuries, and then go back to hydration and, and nutrition. You know, listen, I have a high school athlete. He's a senior right now. He's a lacrosse player, and he's a, and he's a fencer. And, you know, he's got my genes. He loves to eat poorly. Um, so he loves to have those big Italian dinners. But he has learned over time he has decreased his tightness. He has increased his aerobic capability by eating better, hydrating better, and making sure he's conditioned. And he's learned that by trials and tribulations. Yes. It's, taken him, it's taken him four years to get there, but he's finally accepted. If I condition myself right, I eat right, I hydrate appropriately, I will be. Now, listen, you know, one of the greatest athletes of our time, Kobe Bryant, was a guru of nutrition, hydration, and taking care of his body. You know, when you look at magic uh, when you look at uh, Michael Jordan, another guy took care of his body. When you look at Derek Jeter, another guy. Look at where they got in that. Look at Eli Manning. Mm. I mean, think about how many years of football Eli Manning. And That's a great Jordan. example. I mean, but he took care of his body. I remember seeing him in the offseason only because the, the Red Bulls used the same, you know, we were at the old Giant Stadium. And nobody put the time in before or pre and postseason more than Eli Manning. And look at the longevity as a professional quarterback in the NFL that he had. I mean, that says something. And people have to look at that and say, the next time you're sitting in a fast food restaurant, host a game. Is that really the choice? Three cheeseburgers, fries, and a double Coke. Post game, is that really the choice that's going to help my son or daughter get that college scholarship? Is it going to help them? Now, listen, everybody has a cheat day. I'm not telling parents don't be fun, you know, but I am saying if that child has the goals and aspirations, that's right. You know, you really have to help them and give them the tools. That well, that's exactly the 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 thing that I always plant into any of my athletes' head is. You can make whatever choice that you want and that's fine, but there's a consequence, right? And if it's misaligned with what your goals are, don't be surprised if you don't get the results that you want, right? You could put a cheeseburger or Coke and fries in your mouth and that's cool that you're a kid. I get it. But like, don't be surprised when you pull a hamstring or you, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Or you're out of shape or your, your, your weight's not there, whatever. Right. So I'm totally with you. And I normally ask the question of what's the one piece of advice you would give to a, 
of parent or an athlete or whatever. And you've sort of answered it with the patient's commentary. So the, I'll ask it a, a different question in a sort of a different way. What's one piece of advice you would give to a parent or family or athlete in terms of trying to find the right physical therapist? So, so it's the person that communicates best with you, but explains the plan of care. And, and from, from day one to finish, what are the expectations? What are the goals? If you're meeting with a physical therapist and they don't give you a plan of care after two visits, and what are the expectations to get there, that should concern a parent and it should concern an athlete. You have to have a goal and a plan. And listen, all physical therapists are trained to build plan of care based on assessment and diagnosis. So there should be no reason why it's not communicated with the athlete, with the parent, with the coach. You know, we had a scenario two weeks ago that we had a young man, again, a young man who tore his meniscus. Um, High-level athlete, Division I athlete, tore his meniscus. It was decided, it was between a meniscectomy, which is you scallop out a piece of the tissue, or you repair it to see if it scars down. The decision was made for longevity to repair it. So they did a repair. Well, nobody told the coach. So they thought the athlete was getting a meniscectomy and expected to have the athlete back in four to six weeks. Again, there's a case scenario. The athlete's not going to be back for four months. So it's all about that communication chain. And parents and athletes have to be integrated in the communication chain. The other thing, the last piece of advice I'll give a parent, especially of a youth athlete, don't take the messaging from the medical provider from your child. Take it from the provider. So many parents work and they drop their children off or the children comes after school or after a club and they get physical therapy and then they get the interpretation from their 14 to 18 year old. Set up a once a week, 10 minute meeting with the physical therapist. So you're getting it straight from the physical therapist. You know, that's probably one of the biggest advice I could give parents. Get it from the medical provider. Your children, you love them. They're awesome. But they're not licensed physical therapists. And they're going to take a 10-minute medical professional that's licensed synopsis and give you four words. So... I, that's a, I could keep going, but as a, as a, as a father of a 14 and a half year old boy, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So, so with that, I, John, I appreciate you coming on to the podcast. I, I could have kept going for a long, long time. I'm fascinated, fascinated by the work you do. And I think the information you've, you've left with the audience has been, has been really, really applicable and helpful. So, uh, thank you for doing that. Well, thank you so much. And please, if there's any other subjects, I'd love to come back on. That'd be fantastic. Thank you, sir. Thank you. So what was your biggest takeaway from my conversation with John Gallucci? My biggest takeaway is the undeniable importance of an athlete's preconditioning. The right preconditioning program, as emphasized by John, can make a significant difference in an athlete's performance, health, and career longevity. 
However, it's not a one-size-fits-all strategy. The duration and intensity of a preconditioning program should be tailored to the individual athlete's needs and the demands of their particular sport. I encourage all athletes, whether at the early stage or at the college level, to embrace preconditioning as a vital part of their training regimen. By investing time and effort into this often overlooked aspect of preparation, you can significantly reduce your risk of injuries and enhance your performance on the field. I want to thank John for his kind generosity and the wisdom he shared with the Freshman Foundation community. You can learn more about John's work and his contributions to the field of physical therapy by visiting his website at jag1pt.com. That's J-A-G-O-N-E-P-T.com. To learn how you can be ready for your next step in the game of life through mental performance coaching, visit michaelvhuber.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you back soon for episode 63. Mike Huber is the founder and owner of Follow the Ball Coaching, located in Fairhaven, New Jersey. He is a mental performance coach and business advisor dedicated to serving athletes just like you reach their full potential on and off the court. The Freshman Foundation is all about helping you get to the next level. For more information, follow along on Instagram at The Freshman Foundation. Please subscribe. Give us a like on iTunes, Spotify, leave a review, tell a friend. Most importantly, come back in two weeks. Ready to get better.